from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 4. A Calabeth, World of Doom. A Calabeth wasn't much of a story. Go kill a monster. And when the player came back to the castle after killing the monster, he would be told, go kill the next monster. Richard Garriott, Explore, Create. Besides the comprehensive care and design and attention to detail that characterize a Calabeth, subtle touches suggest the mysterious Lord British to be a person of droll wit and good nature. Incidentally, British apparently derives his pseudonym from the character in a Calabeth who doles out quests and confers knighthoods. Soft Talk, January 1981, Review of a Calabeth. There are at least four official versions of a Calabeth, World of Doom. The first, and rarest of them all, is the one self-published by Richard Garriott and sold at Computerland. It is likely that only 12 of these were sold, making it one of the most coveted and expensive collector's items in the history of video games. Even more so because, over the years, its creator was able to regain possession of some of the copies originally purchased in Mayer's store. The second version is the one published by CPCC between 1980 and 1981. There are two reprints. The first is very similar to Garriott's self-published one, also known as the Castle Edition because of the artwork featuring the front of a large castle, while the second came with Dennis Lubay's artwork, the so-called Demon Painting, and an eight-page manual containing a concise introduction, a brief explanation of the character's attributes, and a list of game commands. Of these two editions, 10,000 to 30,000 were sold, still making them a collector's item of high value. The third version was the most widespread and advanced, created by Corey Roth for the IBM PC. Originally intended for the launch of Ultima 9, it was finally included in the Ultima collection, released in 1998, due to continuous development delays. There's also a fourth, lesser-known version. It's a PC port of the CPCC edition, in monochrome, without audio or the ability to save, and without any of the improvements made by Corey Roth. All of them have in common that the game begins with character creation, except for the 1998 PC port, which includes an initial menu allowing the player to see the credits, to continue a saved game, and to see the ending if they've already completed the game at least once. As soon as the game starts, the player is faced with a question. Type thy magic number, which requires the user to enter a seed for the pseudo-random generation of the entire game world. Like many games of this generation, Acalabeth did not offer an option to save, thus finishing the game could take quite some time. When Richard completed the D&D 28B version, he still didn't have a floppy drive and therefore could not implement a save system. Once he had one, he found that there was not enough memory left, which would require rewriting a good part of the game to free up space in order to fit in a save routine. Therefore, Richard decided that the game should be procedurally generated, not unlike Star Trek, based on the input of the user. The result allowed more clever and determined players to draft a map of the world and be able to play the next games with a perfect knowledge of where the dungeons and cities were provided, of course, that they use the same lucky number. The player then had to choose whether to accept the traits of his or her randomly generated character, or try their luck. As 
all dice rolls behind these stats and all consequent dice rolls were derived from the lucky number, the sequence of quote random unquote numbers was identical for each playthrough with the same lucky number and therefore similarly exploitable. Once the character was created, the game started in one of its many cities and asked the player to choose their equipment using money earned from a previous dice roll. In the shop, which is always the same regardless of the city, one could either buy a shield, a magic amulet, food, or one of three types of weapons, a sword, an axe, or a bow and arrow. Many mechanics were clearly derived from Dungeons & Dragons and the gaming sessions Richard used to organize and had tried to recreate on a computer. The introduction of food was one of the most innovative aspects of the game, as it required the user to plan ahead. They couldn't stray too far from shops, or else had to spend large amounts of money in order to have enough food with them during their adventures. During each game, the player had to keep an eye on the amount of food remaining, because when that counter reached zero, the game ended immediately. A Calibeth World of Doom was an amateur product made by a young novice programmer who was clearly a fan of Tolkien. Like many adventures written by the dungeon masters that Richard had seen at work, Acalabeth began with acquiring equipment. There was a very brief introduction on the boot screen, although this was curiously only present in the Apple II version released by CPCC and removed in the PC version. Some explanation was also given in the manual. Until D&D 28 became D&D 28B on his Apple II, Richard had always been the main user and tester of his game, and so never felt the need to create an introductory section to present his own game to himself. The manual filled this gap and explained to the player the setting of the game. The wizard Mondain, son of Wolfgang, envious of his firstborn brother, had used magic to fill Acalabeth's world with evil creatures. In the highest levels of the dungeons, Mondain had placed goblins, skeletons, and hordes of thieves, while in the bowels of the earth, at the deepest levels of the tunnels, demons and fearsome balrogs, another reference from Tolkien, were set up as guards. Mondain's era was to end at the hands of Lord British, the Champion of Light. The hero had defeated his opponent and driven him out of a calibeth. Like in Tolkien's The Silmarillion, Mondain's fall wasn't enough to free the world from the evil the Dark Lord had spread. It was up to the player to do their part and free the realm of Lord British from evil creatures. Following the sparse suggestions in the manual, the player had to find Lord British's castle and introduce themselves to the king, who would then issue a series of quests that the player had to solve in order to advance to final victory. However, outside of these quests, the world could still be freely explored, and enemies were generated in either case. When entering the castle for the first time, Lord British introduced himself to the player. Welcome, peasant, into the halls of the mighty Lord British. Herein, thou may choose to dare battle with the evil creatures of the depths for great reward. What is thy name, peasant? The text for the entire game was written in capital letters because of the Apple II's inability to display lowercase characters, unless one was using expansions or the much slower high-resolution mode and thereby sacrificing valuable memory. Another thing that stood out immediately was the pompous... Elizabethan-inspired language with which Richard had decided to give voice to Lord British. This choice, a clear reflection of the young man's experiences of live role-playing, was destined to become one of the characteristic traits of Garriott's work. In front of Lord British, the player then had to answer the question, choosing the name of his or her virtual alter ego. The game behaved in an agnostic way towards the player's character, not asking about sex or age, but after generating the parameters of strength, dexterity, endurance, wisdom, and life points, it put its focus only on the player's profession, fighter or mage, and name. 
Finally, Lord British asked the player if he or she was ready to embark on a great adventure. Having obtained a positive answer, the Sovereign delivered his commands. Lord British's missions were always the same, entering dungeons and defeating a creature in the bestiary of ten monsters, which Richard's self-produced cover defined ambitiously as, quote, high res, unquote. After leaving the castle, the player had to find a dungeon, marked on the world map with an X, and enter by pressing the correct key. Up to this point, the game offered nothing special, even by the modest standards of the gaming industry at the time. After entering the dungeon, however, the entire gaming experience changed. Extremely original and technically avant-garde, the representation of the dungeons from the player's point of view elevated Akalabeth from a scholastic experiment to a commercial phenomenon, determining its success and giving rise to the game development career of its creator. With just a few lines of code, Richard designed corridors, rooms, doors, ladders, and trap doors for the dungeons in a very effective manner. The Apple II was a primitive machine, and BASIC had limited capabilities that Richard would learn to exploit to the fullest before moving on to more sophisticated and powerful programming languages. Despite all of this, with the modest tools available and his brilliant intuition, the young man was able to effectively recreate the experience of board games, bringing these to the microcomputer. Richard had spent long hours with checkered paper, calculating the coordinates and formatting in Wozniak's obtuse graphics system for his schematic monster representations. Yet, these monsters in, again, quote, high resolution, unquote, were much more detailed than in the one game that had preceded Akalabeth, and also in many of those that would follow. Players moved in steps, rotating at 90 or 180 degrees, and going up or down where possible, using the keyboard only. The author perfected the engine that generated the game world with each version. Akalabeth featured incredible complexity in its world generation. It was able to generate three-dimensional dungeons with walls and doors, starting from that lucky number. The generated dungeons were fully explorable and never led to dead ends. As Richard had taken cues from studying Star Trek's basic code, which had been published in numerous newsletters, and in the book 101 Basic Computer Games, while working on Akalabeth, he ended up writing a more complex and advanced version of its routines, making full use of Applesoft's capabilities. When the player came across a monster, a fight began. As in D&D 1 and its successors, the fight was turn-based, always allowing for a single action, usually pressing the A key to attack. Of course, attacking a monster in a Calibeth required a degree of preparation. When the A key was pressed, the game would ask, with which weapon? Players then had to remember the hotkeys that they had used when buying weapons, R for rapier, A for axe, and B for bow and arrow. Complicating matters was the possibility that thieves could steal equipment, which actually happened quite frequently, sometimes leaving the character weaponless. In such cases, the player had no choice but to resort to using a different weapon, if available, or fighting with their bare hands. Having killed the required monster, the player would return to Lord British and receive a new mission of increasing difficulty after completing their final assignment of defeating the Balrog, the game's most fearsome monster, Lord British would extend his congratulations. Thou hast accomplished thy quest. Thou hast proved thyself worthy of knighthood. Continue play if thou dost wish, but thou hast accomplished the main objective of this game. Call California Pacific Computer at 415-569-9126 to report this amazing feat. The last sentence, which was replaced by, quote, report thy amazing feat to Lord British today, unquote, in the PC version, 
had first been included by Richard when he had prepared the game for release at the Computerland store. The game was so personal and our expectations so small that I included my home address and phone number and asked players to call me when they finished the game. Akalabeth was, of course, written in AppleSoft Basic, which was notoriously slow. Every move in the dungeons or on the surface required the microcomputer to take a few seconds to redraw the map or the dungeon view. This also made the source code accessible to anyone, simply interrupt the loading to see the entire listing of the program on the screen. For the more curious, this was a good way to see the operation of a fairly complex piece of software from the inside. For others, it was a source of further leisure. Being able to change any parameter, a capable player was able to customize the adventure by modifying parts of the program. One of the more bizarre aspects of the game was the magic amulet, available at the very beginning. This could only be used safely by players choosing the mage character, and thus giving up the use of a sword and shield. Activated at any time during the exploration of dungeons, the magical amulet would make the character rise to the upper level of the underground, or bring them back down to the lower level, or create a magic dart, thus performing an attack, or sometimes letting them try their luck with a spell known only as, quote, bad, unquote. This last option was considered destabilizing to the balance and mechanics of the game, as it could easily be exploited by the pseudo-random generation of each electronic dice roll. By selecting bad, the player ran the risk of being transformed into a toad, resulting in a lowering of all characteristics to three. They could also lose half their life points, or at best, be transformed into a lizard man, resulting in a 150% increase in characteristics. This could be repeated several times, bestowing incredibly high capabilities upon the player within a few minutes, and making everything in the game much easier. Another quirk of Akalabeth was the complete lack of a cure or heal system, or a maximum number of life points. These could be lost during combat or gained when leaving a dungeon, through a mechanism that allotted points depending on the number of monsters defeated. Although peculiar and counterintuitive, the system worked and forced the player who was running out of life points to enter a dungeon and earn them by defeating monsters. Another consequence of this setup was that Richard managed to avoid implementing an experience and leveling system borrowed directly from Dungeons & Dragons, which helped reduce the complexity of the program. Therefore, life points, or hit points if you want to think of them that way, were a resource that could and indeed should be collected, rationed, and used in the best way, and preferably accumulated for challenging situations. There was no theoretical limit on life points due to the level mechanics. While life points were displayed on the monitor with a four-digit counter, implying that there was a maximum number of 9,999 points, this was much more than would actually be needed to complete the adventure. And, like as not, the game pushed the user to save life points for the most difficult fights. Akalabeth World of Doom was the second officially commercialized computer role-playing game in the world, beaten in time only by John Freeman and Jeff Johnson's Temple of Apshai, which was published by Automated Simulations, later renamed to Epix, in August of 1979 for the TRS-80, making it the first episode of the Dungeon Quest series. And that's Dungeon with a J and no E. Apshai, the first RPG for microcomputers, featured even rougher graphics because of the very limited capabilities of the machine on which it was programmed. Tandy's microcomputer had a monochrome video output and, like the Commodore PET, used 
semi-graphical characters to make up for its inability to visualize rastered graphics. In Temple of Apshai, the player was assigned a character at random with a series of dice rolls, after which the user had to choose the name of their alter ego and buy equipment using a starting allotment of money. Curiously, the first opponent of the player was always the haggling dealer who had to provide the equipment. Next, the player could finally venture into the dungeon by selecting a starting level, a feature made necessary by the absence of a save system. Compared to a Calibeth, the initial impact of Apshai was decidedly disappointing. Due to the graphical limitations of the TRS-80, the player's character was represented by a greater-than sign linked to the player's movement. Treasures were white rectangles, and enemies were represented by crosses. To overcome the significant memory limitations of these early machines, the programmers had set up a gaming system that was actually provided on paper. The dungeons were made up of rooms, which were described in detail in the manual. Even the treasures that players could find while wandering around Apshai's dungeons were generically described in the game as treasure number followed by whatever number the treasure was. The player then had to cross-reference the manual's index to find out what they had just obtained. Each level had a list of room and treasure descriptions. For the first level, the most frequently found treasure was number 20, quote, nothing of value, unquote. The combat system was a hybrid of turn-based and real-time, unlike Acalibeth's turn-based combat system. Acalibeth's system being a throwback to the time-sharing and teletype-based systems that Garriott had started programming on. Each action in Apshai required a turn, and the computer recalculated the entire scene after each action. This made both the character and any monsters they were facing seem to act, never more than one at a time. In rooms with the best treasures, defeating the first monster could generate more monsters. If the player did not make a choice within a time limit, the system would consider the turn lost and continue with the next turn. Temple of Apshai players could engage in melee combat using various controls. With A for attack, the player attacked the enemy with a normal blow. With T, thrust, they carried out a special attack, more powerful but fatiguing and requiring stamina. While with P, parry, the character could choose to defend, doing less damage but recovering a bit of breath. It was also possible to engage at combat in a distance with bow and arrows. Despite the game's limitations, Temple of Apshai was the first to give the microcomputer user an opportunity to experience the typical situations of role-playing board games and face important tactical choices. Success was not that far away. Freeman and Johnson discovered that the small software house they had founded exclusively to sell programs written to recoup the costs of buying the microcomputer as an aid to their favorite hobby, Dungeons & Dragons, could be a significant source of income. To recoup the high costs of buying a computer in the first place, they'd started writing games, and to this end, they'd founded a small software house. Having discovered that selling games could be a great source of income, the two soon started work on ports of Temple of Apshai for the PET, the Apple II, and from 1982 on, the Commodore 64 and IBM PC. In total, on all of these platforms, Temple of Apshai sold almost 30,000 copies in less than three years before being withdrawn from the market. It gave rise to a successful series of titles that reached 10 chapters and served as the engine for the young automated simulations, pushing it to become a famous software house in the microcomputer industry, eventually under the name of Epix. One of the reasons the game sold so many copies was that the next two chapters, Upper Reaches of Apshai and Curse of Ra, were expansions. They required the first game in order for the user to resume the game where they'd left off. Unfortunately, 
The first magnetic tape versions of Temple of Apshai had no save mechanism. The player had to note the status of their character, magic potions, equipment, money, and answer, whether sincerely or not, the questions of the program when they restarted. They also had to indicate the exact level that their character had achieved at the end of the previous gaming session. Similar to Akalabeth's pseudo-random generation system, Freeman and Johnson's ploy was not flawless, but it overcame a technological barrier and allowed the player to complete the game in multiple sessions. As rough and limited as they appear, both Temple of Apshai and Akalabeth were extraordinary, cutting-edge products as the first role-playing games for microcomputers. We have to remember that Richard Garriott's game, in particular, was created as a school experiment without the intent of ever being released commercially. So, it was a sketchy role-playing game, by modern standards, and also, in some respects, a tech demo, as we might call it today, able to showcase the potential of the computer and the programmer. And fortunately, it arrived on store shelves with great impact, radically changing the history of video games and the life of Richard Garriott. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash sssshpodcast or at spam 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 humbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T-H-E-I-R-A dot I-T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-O-N-T-A-T-O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.